0: Is Motley Full Answers. I'm Allison Southwick and I'm joined as always by Robert, Broke as a Joke, Bro Camp. Hey, bro, how you doing?
1: Just great, Allison. How are you?
0: Oh, good. You're not really broke. That would kind of undermine your authority as a money expert on this show.
1: As far as anyone knows, yes, what you said yeah. is true. <laughs>
0: Well, it's the June mailbag, and this month we're joined by Jen Thomas, one of the newest additions to The Motley Fool Wealth Management's team of financial planners. She's going to help answer your questions on how to put The Motley Fool stock recommendations to work in your portfolio, paying down your mortgage versus saving for retirement, and whether you have enough FI, financial independence, so you can RE retire early. It spells fire! You already knew that. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Jen, welcome to the show. This is your first time joining us. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It is. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So, you, I say that you're like one of the most recent additions to The Motley Fool's uh, wealth management, the, to the planners team, but I guess you've actually been with the team for about six months now. So, it's a not so new.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, can you tell
0: us a little bit about um, how you came to be here at The Motley Fool?
2: Yeah, um, I like to joke and say it was a little bit of stalking. So uh, two years before I joined the team, um, I actually went on a full tour. Um, I, I got the opportunity to see the landscape and be in the office and learn more about the company culture, and I fell absolutely in love. Uh, But even before that, I was a client of The Fool as a Stock Advisor subscriber. So I early on had a jester cap, I like to say, uh, before I actually officially got my jester cap. So yeah, just always been a big fan of The Fool and follower, and now I'm so fortunate to be a part of the family.
0: Ah, Well, we're fortunate to have you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, this is maybe your first podcast appearance, but I want you to know that we're very nice people and um, <laughs> it's all going to be just fine. And our audience, our listeners are also lovely people. And um, let's just get into it, shall we?
2: Yeah, all let's right. do this.
0: Here we go. So our first question comes from Adam. During the pandemic, I have really come to value staying at home with my wife and newborn, and now I would really like to stay at home full time. Who's to say that our son shouldn't have two stay at home parents? Well, before the baby, we were spending about $40,000 per year in the DC area. How much would we need in savings to retire now? Apparently, the fire community and the 4% rule of thumb would indicate $1 million, but that doesn't take into account the new baby, our really young age, or the current market. We have one point one million in a brokerage account and eight hundred thousand in our four hundred one k IRA accounts. Could we actually do this?
1: Well, uh, Adam, a lot of financial success comes down to personality, right? Like, are you frugal by nature? Are you on top of your finances? Do you enjoy investing? And from what you've told us, Adam, I think you and your wife have what it takes to pull off early retirement. Every fool participating in this episode lives in the D.C. metro area, and we know what it would take to live on forty thousand dollars a year. So Adam and his wife apparently are thrifty folks, which is the first step, really, on the road to early retirement. Plus, they've managed to amass a portfolio of, of one point nine million dollars at a young age. Withdrawing forty percent or forty thousand dollars from a portfolio that size is a two point one percent withdrawal rate which is definitely sustainable. Um, as Adam points out, many in the FIRE movement talk about the 4% rule. Um, but in my opinion, many of them only have sort of a cursory understanding of it. It was designed to last 30 years, not 50 or 60. And it's based on historical stock and bond returns, including periods when bonds returned way more than they will likely return over the next several years. So if I were retiring early, I'd be more comfortable with a withdrawal rate closer to 3%, but that would still make 2.1% pretty safe. Um, I think what Adam needs to do is project what their expenses will be over the coming years and whether that will still result in a low withdrawal rate. The biggest challenge um, for him if he leaves work is going to be health care and then maybe further down the road college if he and his wife choose to cover the cost and also factor in whether they're going to have more kids. Um, Many family-oriented fire folks have come up with their own solutions for these costs. So I would just read some of their blogs and see what would work for you. Um, a couple of examples are Brad and Jonathan from Choose FI, and we've had them on the show. Um, Justin, who writes The Root of Good, has three kids. And The Frugal Woods have a couple of kids, and they literally live out in the woods. So it wouldn't all be applicable to someone in D.C., but you can learn some lessons from them. So we check out their blogs and see how they managed to raise a, fi- a family while also doing fire. And then a few other blogs I would recommend is are um, Madfientists, so not scientists, but fi position on fire and the financial samurai and I like them because uh, those folks are more analytical and they take a really detailed look at how much you need to um, retire early and what's a sustainable withdrawal rate. and I think if you look at all those resources you'll be able to determine when you could whether you could retire early but based on what you have just passed along Adam, I, I feel like it's very promising.
0: Yeah, step number one might be move out of the DC area. (laughs) That right there is gonna double what their horizon there.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right. Next question comes from Erica. I'm a member of Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor and have been using the fool's guidance to fund my taxable brokerage account. This year I opened a Roth IRA with the max contribution of six thousand dollars on top of an employer sponsored four hundred one K. However, I just found out this brokerage doesn't allow for fractional share purchases, and now I have just $9.19 available in cash. What the heck do I do with that? I haven't been able to find any worthy stocks with that price tag. Do I just leave the money there until I can contribute more cash next year? That seems like a waste. Do I withdraw it and reinvest elsewhere? I can sell something I own to have a larger sum, but I feel like I'll just end up in the same predicament. Help!
2: Well, congratulations, Erica, on maxing on maxing, you know, putting towards your Roth and then your 401k and then your Roth. But don't panic. You have a few options. Um, Option one, don't agonize over the $9.19. Leave it in cash. And if you own any dividends or interest-paying stocks that aren't being automatically reinvested, that can add to the cash throughout the year, allowing you to reinvest the proceeds sometime eventually. Or option two, you could consider opening a new brokerage account on a platform that allows fractional shares like Schwab, Fidelity, or Interactive Brokers, for example. Then you can do what is known as an automated customer account transfer or ACAT transfer. It's a system that automates procedures for the transfer of assets in a customer account from one brokerage firm to another. This way, you won't have to sell any of your recently purchased stocks and can get the cash on a platform where you can invest it all. At the Motley Fool Wealth Management, we use interactive brokers as our third-party custodian. So I know their clients can initiate those types of transfers on their own online. But if you're not sure how to do that or choose a different brokerage firm, I suggest you just give the firm a call and have them complete the transfer for you. It's quick and it's easy and your money can all be in the same place and invested. Uh, and, of course, you can sell something you own to add to the cash, but I don't encourage that, uh, because if you're placing a market order, the uncertainty and final price of volatility will most likely leave you with a balance again.
0: That's such an answers listener right there who's worried about those those last less than $10. I love it. <laughs> Every penny accounted for.
1: So, just to make sure I understood it, are you suggesting that people move that to another
2: IRA? That does allow fractional shares? Exactly. Okay. And they can easily do that without having to sell the stocks they just purchased through an ACAT transfer, Got or what's it. known as an ACAT transfer. Yep. And then
1: the other thing I would add to that is that she does have a 401k. Some 401ks do allow you to buy individual stocks. So, And with your 401k, you're always putting money in there. If your 401k doesn't, maybe just ask your HR team if they would allow that. Um, we've had experience where listeners do advocate for changes and the changes happen. may not be for, for letting buy individual stocks because some employers are uncomfortable with that, but there's no harm in asking.
0: All right, Our next question comes from Jeff. I am a 26-year-old with a stable job as an engineer making 85000 a year. I pay $1,000 a month on my student loans and at the current rate will have a balance paid off in about seven years. I also invest 15% of my income in a 401k and another 5% in a brokerage stock account. I've debated investing less and putting more money toward my loans, knowing that I would save on interest. On the other hand, I've explored some longer-term to 20-25-year payment plans with significantly lower monthly payments, which would free up hundreds of dollars a month to invest each month starting now. Any advice on how you can offer to help me make an informed decision?
1: Well, first off, the decision to pay off debt or invest more is partially a psychological decision. Really, you have to ask yourself, like, how do you feel about debt? Does it weigh on you? Or are you perfectly fine with it? Um, Also, paying off debt is guaranteed return, whereas nothing is guaranteed in the stock market. Um, That said, theoretically, to make investing pay off, you just have to earn a return that is higher than the rate on your debt. Uh, And with today's low rates, that's not a particularly high hurdle. I think that the rate on a federal loan is about 4.7%. If you have private loans, it could be a little lower, than that might be a little higher. But still, it won't take much to exceed the rate on that debt. Um, You're also doing a good job of saving, especially if you're getting an employer match on top of that 15% you're contributing to the 401k. Um, So, I I don't look at your situation and be like, yeah, you need to invest more because you're already doing a good job. Um, Should point out, though, that student debt does have some advantages, um, so to speak, at least to the the extent any debt has an advantage. Um, As we saw during the pandemic, loan payments can be put in deferment during a downturn. It depends on your loans, and there's no guarantee it'll happen in the future. But, you know, we now have a historical precedent for it. Plus, as you know, there's all this talk of at least some student loan forgiveness. I'm, I'm usually not a big proponent of making major decisions based solely on what Washington might do. But I think this is possible enough to at least consider it as a factor. Uh, also, up to $2,500 in de- interest is tax deductible if you make under a certain amount of money. Um, you actually are probably at a point where you may not get that deduction. It starts to phase out for single folks between uh, modified adjusted gross incomes of 70000 $85,000, twice that if you're married. Um, But it's just good for everyone else to know. Plus, it's an above-the-line deduction, so you don't have to itemize to take care of it, to take that deduction. Um, I also think it's probably a good idea just to look at the numbers. And the internet is full of calculators that can help you run the numbers on investing versus paying down the debt. I did an online search, and I found one at studentloanhero.com and another at magnifymymoney.com. Um, Try a few. They'll often provide somewhat different answers, Uh, but it's just good to see how much you have to earn on your investments for it to be a break-even decision and also to see how much you have after several years if your investments do at least okay and maybe if not better. Uh, And then I I should add that it sounds like you're considering refinancing your current loan, and I have to say, I'm not an expert on this. So make sure you do your research beforehand. It can be a little tricky. Uh, Both the Department of Labor and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau have good info on managing and replacing your current loans.
0: All right, Our next question comes from Joan. I recently started subscribing to Stock Advisor, but can't afford to invest in all the stocks recommended each month. How would you advise picking the stocks to invest in? Should I pick a dollar amount, say $200, and pick portions of each stock to add up to what I can afford to invest? I don't know if I can purchase just a fraction of a stock with my brokerage, or should I save up until I have a larger amount, say $1,000, and then pick the recommended stocks for that month? That would mean I'm investing maybe once a quarter. Also, what would you say is the recommended dollar amount to have in order to start investing? Should I have dividends reinvested or or have it added as cash so I can invest in more stocks?"
2: All right, a lot of great questions there, Joan. Uh, First, I'd suggest confirming whether your brokerage allows the purchase of fractional shares. Then we would want to make sure your emergency fund or short-term bucket is squared away, meaning that you have three to six months of fixed expenses set aside, because of course, we never want to invest short-term money in a long-term fashion. Now to your questions. I think the most important aspect of investing is discipline. It's not easy in the beginning, but over time through practice, you can build that muscle. When you choose to invest a specific amount consistently, regardless of market activity, this strategy is known as dollar cost averaging. If you don't already know, you can benefit from dollar cost averaging as it removes the guesswork and guarantees you a favorable price for the stock you're buying. It doesn't guarantee against loss, however, meaning if you invest over time in a failing company, well, dollar cost averaging can't save you there. So I'll say step one is to determine how much You can save to invest each month and decide you're going to contribute that amount monthly into your brokerage account. You want to focus on time in the market as opposed to timing the market, which is why I'll say to start now and prioritize focusing on building the right habits, which are saving to invest and building a diversified portfolio. And this will go a long way um, during bad markets, of course. There really is no wrong way to go about building up your positions, different strategies for different circumstances, but I'll suggest as a new investor focusing on buying as many shares of one to two companies each month from the Stock Advisor Recommendations, which you subscribe to, with the amount you can afford to invest. This way, by the end of the year, you'll have a portfolio of about 25 stocks you plan to hold for at least five years, each year adding to these positions pro rata. I would also use the Motley Fool's really neat allocator tool, which can help narrow down which stocks to invest in next based on your time horizon and risk tolerance. The tool will give you the framework for your portfolio and keep you organized as you build. If your brokerage account does not allow for fractional shares, I suggest switching accounts because you'll be able to build your portfolio quicker with this feature and consider also automating your dividends, right? So, auto reinvesting your dividends for the same purpose. Um, Finally, uh, what you want to avoid is staying on the sidelines after having saved up a lump sum of money and being nervous about investing because the market might be down that day. And of course, we don't know for how long after. So, sticking to a disciplined investment strategy and investing and an investment regimen is really the way to go.
0: Our next question comes from Chuck. My wife and I intend to enroll in Medicare when we turn 65. Our income is very near the Medicare income limits that, if exceeded, will increase the cost of our Part B premiums. I've heard that the rule of thumb for retirees is to withdraw from taxable accounts first, then traditional IRAs, and lastly, Roth IRAs. However, selling stock with a gain or withdrawing from a traditional IRA will raise our income and put us over the Medicare income hurdle. Will withdrawals from our Roth IRAs be considered by Medicare as income when determining our Medicare premiums? If not, then would you agree that withdrawing from our Roth IRAs first may be a better plan?
1: What Chuck is talking about here is something called Income-Related Monthly Adjustment Amount, or IRMA, which basically determines how much you're going to pay for Medicare Part B. It's based on your modified adjusted gross income, which is your adjusted gross income plus Tax exempt interest, like so, maybe interest you have from municipal bonds. Um, so, basically, what it comes down to is if your modified adjusted gross income is below $88,000 for singles, $176,000 for married folks, you're going to pay about $150 a month for Medicare B. The interesting thing about IRMA is what you pay is based on your tax return from two years ago. So, um, the 2021 premiums are based on 2019 tax returns. That's important to know because as you are in your early 60s and start thinking about Medicare, you have to plan ahead to plan for IRMA. So once you get over those limits, you're going to start paying a little bit more for Medicare. The next limit is $207 per month. Um, And there are actually six brackets all the way up to paying about $500 a month. Uh, Chuck is right about what the rule of thumb used to be in that when you're retired, you tap your taxable accounts first, then your traditional tax deferred, and then your tax-free Roth. But nowadays, there's more nuance to it. Still, it's generally better to do the taxable first, but then you decide whether to choose the Roth or traditional based on where you think you'll be at age 72 when you have to take required minimum distributions. Because if you delay them, if you delay touching your your tax deferred account Until then, it could result in some really large required minimum distributions. Um, So to answer Chuck's first question, which is, uh, do Roth distributions affect this IRMA? And the answer is no, because Roth withdrawals are tax-free. They don't factor into your adjusted gross income. So yes, they could reduce the chances that you'll pay this IRMA, which is another reason why Roths are so attractive. But that doesn't necessarily mean Chuck should tap his Roth before his traditional because if he leaves the traditional accounts to grow, it could mean his required minimum distributions are so large that it push him up a couple of IRMA tax brackets. It really just depends on how big they are. So what Chuck should do, and I know this isn't very exciting, but he should create a spreadsheet where he essentially estimates how much his RMDs will be when he reaches age 72 and how much that will affect his taxes and Medicare premiums. This is kind of complicated. Um, so, if he works with a financial advisor or accountant, then they should be able to help him with this analysis because it involves several moving parts and they can help determine whether he should tap his Roth sooner or later in his retirement.
0: Our next question comes from Natalie. My husband and I just had a baby. We're from Ireland and moved to New York City two years ago. While we like America, college fees are not attractive to us. In Ireland, education is relatively free or inexpensive. Should we start a 529 account for our daughter and future children, or are there alternate investment options like a Roth for her? We're both in tech and we're both maxing out our 401ks and not eligible, we don't think, for the backdoor IRA due to our income.
2: Well, congratulations on your newest bundle of joy, Natalie. (laughs) Um, I think starting a 529 account for your daughter is a fabulous idea because of all the flexibility the account offers. Yes, there are other savings vehicles such as Coverdell, UTMA, UGMA, and like you mentioned, Roth, but of those and and assuming your household income, since you mentioned no longer being able to directly contribute to a Roth. A 529 plan is probably the best way for you to go. I suggest establishing one in your state so you can take advantage of state income tax deductions. Uh, This doesn't mean your daughter is then required to attend an in-state school. It simply allows you to take up to a $4,000 deduction on your state income taxes for each account you end up contributing to. Benefits of going the 529 route. One, higher contribution limits, Um, You and your husband can contribute up to $15,000 a year and avoid gift tax reporting. Two, the money you contribute will grow tax-deferred, and distributions for qualified expenses are tax-free. Qualified expenses are basically education-related expenses. Three, this is a pretty recent change. Now you can use a portion of your 529 funds for K through 12 tuition expenses. So, if you're considering private school um, for your little one, that's definitely an advantage. Four, favorable financial aid treatment. The 529 plan is viewed as as an asset for the parent and not for the student. So, a smaller percentage of the total value is going to be used in calculating whether or not your daughter is going to qualify for financial aid in the future, and then finally, um, the 529 plan offers really uh, great low maintenance um, investment options, um, and also is considered a low maintenance account um, with mutual fund options in there. And you even have most of the time an option to align the investment with the um, the year or the target year in which your your daughter will start college. So automatically, that mutual fund will become more conservative as that time approaches and uh, in line with when you'll need to start pulling the funds out to cover tuition. So there are several more benefits. Um, I encourage you to view your state's, New York State Now um, website to learn a little bit more, Uh, but you're not limited to opening uh, an account in your home state only. You can look at other states' plans and their investment options um, and make a decision then. Another really great thing is that plans are transferable. So um, if your daughter ends up getting scholarships or does something different, the money in those accounts um, isn't lost. You can always use it for um, siblings or other children. Um, And one final thing, I thought this was pretty neat. Um, Not long ago, I got. birth announcement from friends of ours. And um, on the back of the picture postcard, um, the family had included instructions on how we could contribute or help contribute towards their child education fund. So that's a creative way to kind of get the family involved and um, everyone saving for education.
1: I love that. It's a great idea. I I know some state plans also offer basically like gift certificates you could buy for people Uh, The only thing I'll add to that was the last part. Natalie said that they think that they are not eligible to the backdoor Roth to their income. And I've seen this come up a few times in other places. And the bottom line on that is anyone can do the backdoor Roth as long as they have earned income because you're contributing to a non-deductible traditional IRA and then converting. And anyone, of regardless of income, regardless if they're covered by a plan at work, can contribute to a non-deductible traditional IRA, again, as long as they have earned income. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a way to pay for college, but I just wanted to clarify that last point.
0: Our next question comes from Barbara. My husband and I have been pretty good about contributing to the TSP, the federal government version of 401k. Additionally, we both have pensions coming to us when we retire. We're both 50 and planning to retire early. However, we have not been good about stashing money into a savings account and therefore do not have easy access to cash without getting taxed. Our financial advisor thinks we should invest in a whole life insurance policy that pays dividends and includes a long-term care component. I don't have long-term care insurance, but my husband does. He makes the case that since we don't have savings, in the years when we do not pull from our investments because of market downturns, this kind of policy would allow us to tap into the cash value and bridge the gap. He also makes the case that we are headed for increasing tax rates, and this would allow us to ensure access to non-taxed cash. Others tell us this is crazy and totally useless. I should add, we have no children. Thank goodness.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love the thank goodness part. (laughs) Let's go hang out with Barbara. All right, bro. Uh, Well, as I've often said, having kids was the best and hardest decision I ever made. But anyways, uh, so... Barbara, every insurance policy is different, Um, so I would actually need to see the price you're paying for the benefits you'd be receiving to form a firm opinion. Uh, But from what I could tell, what you're looking for is essentially an emergency fund and maybe some long-term care insurance. And there are better and cheaper ways to get both than through a whole life policy. So, the thing about insurance policies, you got all the benefits and they all sound good, but you have to look at the cost. So, let's look at an idea of how much A policy would cost for you. And I got this figure from NerdWallet. NerdWallet has a great series of articles on life insurance, plus some tools you could use. And they had an article that provided the cost of a $500,000 policy. So a whole life $500,000 policy for a 50-year-old female would be about $8,400. Now, I'm guessing that your financial advisor recommended a higher policy. So I'm going to say it was a million dollars, which means you'd be paying about $17,000. Plus... That's just the whole life policy. The one you're looking at is a hybrid that has basically a long-term care rider, which is an extra benefit, which is extra cost. So it could be as much as $20,000 a year for this policy. I think you'd be better off just investing that money in a high-yield savings account and then begin building up your pile of safe money that way. Um, Especially since you don't really need life insurance, since you don't have dependents who rely on your income. In next week's episode, we'll talk about some of the tax and estate planning benefits of life insurance and why it might make sense, even for people who don't have dependents. Um, but generally speaking, speaking these uh, tax and estate planning benefits aren't big enough to just deny, justify an expensive policy for most people. Uh, now, our guest for next week, Joe Perna of Motley Full Wealth Management, knows a lot more about insurance than I do. So we'll get his take on these life insurance and long-term care hybrids. Um, So we'll see what he says. Uh, And I certainly like the idea that you're thinking about long-term care insurance, uh, especially since you don't have kids who can help out when you get older. Uh, But I would just look for a a self-standing policy. As a federal employee, you're eligible for the federal long-term care insurance program, uh, which is the first place I would start if you're looking for that type of insurance. It's not the most flexible option out there, but it provides sort of a good baseline to begin with. And then, as you shop around for other policies, you could compare those and see if you can find something that's better for your situation.
0: Our next question comes from Allie. I have been a Motley Fool fan since I was a teenager. When I was 17, I read The Motley Fool Investment Guide for Teens and started investing at age 18. Now I'm reading The Investment Guide for Adults as a 33-year-old, and I also love your podcast. Aw, thanks, Allie. All right, I have two questions. One, my husband and I are considering paying more toward principal on our mortgage in our 30-year loan in order to, quote, bring it down to a 15-20-year loan but we're also wondering how much we should focus on that versus saving for retirement through investments. Two, I am a teacher and I'm wondering what the benefits are of saving for retirement through my employer rather than via a brokerage company like Fidelity on my own. I have the option of a, five, a 457B and or a 403B. Should I contribute to an outside Roth IRA?
2: Thanks for the question, Allie. I love that story. She's been following us since 17. That's awesome. So, um, great. so I'll say, if, Allie, if you haven't already started saving for retirement, then I recommend pumping the brakes on trying to pay your mortgage down quickly and taking advantage of the retirement accounts your employers are offering. Um, there are lots of perks to saving in an employer sponsored plan and the largest being employee matching. If your employer is offering to match your deferrals, you want to make sure you contribute at least as much as they're going to match. That's money you don't have to leave on the table. It's free money, take it. <laughs> Other benefits to using your employer retirement plan um, are the current tax savings, the tax deferral benefits, the investment choices, the cost of the investments in the plan, um, the loanability, and uh, legal protection. So depending on how big of a company you work for, the investment fund options can sometimes cost less than if you were to invest on your own as a retail investor. Some employer plans allow you to open a brokerage window, which means you can invest in individual securities like stocks and bonds through there. Uh, But depending on your investment style and that may or may not be a good fit for you. If you're able to save more money above what you'll contribute to your employer plans and are eligible to save in a Roth, then it's always a great idea to do so. That's, Roths are wonderful vehicles that are intended for retirement, but really post 59 and a half can be used for anything. And assuming you had the account open and funded for at least five years prior, uh, both your contributions and the growth are tax free to you, which makes them so magical. Uh, Just so you know, the Modified Adjusted Gross Income Limit for 2021 to determine whether or not you're eligible to contribute is $196,000 for married filing jointly, or if you are married filing jointly, and $124,000 for a person who's single. Lastly, uh, something you should consider regarding your mortgage is uh, possibly splitting your monthly payment into biweekly mortgage payments. So, based on the interest how the interest is accruing. Uh, By making two payments a month instead of one, you're resetting the interest clock and essentially lowering the amount of interest you pay overall. So paying your mortgage every two weeks adds one full payment each year. This typically shaves five years off the life of your mortgage. So good news, Allie, you can actually do both. You can take care of your future and get ahead on paying down your mortgage sooner. All
0: right, next question comes from Nate. I'd be curious to hear the team's thoughts on annuities. My very limited understanding is that you are paying into a fund that will give you a set amount every year in retirement, but you can't pass on the underlying asset to heirs, stocks, and exchange-traded funds with super low expense ratios." Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Nate.
1: (laughs) Still makes Uh, me laugh. (laughs) That's good. Uh, So, uh, Nate, annuities are insurance products and there are so many different types of annuities and each policy is different. In my opinion, the type most worth considering is along lines of what you described. You hand over a lump sum to an insurance company, and you get a check every month or every year for the rest of your life. Um, I actually recently wrote about annuities uh, in my Really retirement service, and I got some quotes from am- ImmediateAnnuities.com, which is a good source of information about annuities. So, if you're a 65-year-old male and you hand over $100,000 to a life insurance company or an annuity company, you'll get $5,800 a year for the rest of your life. If you wait till age 70, you'll get $6,700 a year. The longer you wait to buy an annuity, the more you're going to get because it's based on life expectancy. 65-year-old female is going to get less because females live longer. So at age 65, she get about $5,500 and at age 70, $6,200. Most of those, those are straight annuities. And as Nate points out, if when the annuitant passes away, the heirs won't get anything. Now you can get sort of different types of annuities where the money will maybe continue to a spouse or maybe pay for a certain number of years even if you die pretty soon after buying the annuity, but those are basically extra benefits that result in lower payments. So it's basically like creating your own pension. And like a pension, the money co- the money comes in every month, every year, regardless of what's happening in the bond market, stock market, the economy. And it lasts as long as you do, so it mitigates the risk of you outliving your money. Uh, You do have to choose a highly rated insurer, because if it goes under, you may not get all those payments. Uh, That said, the insurance industry is very regulated, so they have to play it pretty safe. Plus, every state has a guarantee fund that will pay some of the benefits in case the insurer goes belly up. Um, So, I think these kinds of annuities can make sense for some retirees as an alternative for the money that you would otherwise invest in bonds. So let's say you decide that you think you should have a 60 40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Maybe use 5% to 10% to 15% of that bond allocation and put it in an annuity. There are other types of annuities that sound really good, such as allowing you to invest in the stock market and get some potential upside while guaranteeing no downside, no losses, or maybe it guarantees a certain level of income. Uh, I know anecdotally that some policies that were offered years ago have turned out very well for po- policy holders. because basically, the insurance companies sort of misprice them in the client's favor. Uh, but the devil's in the details, and the expenses are often so high or the benefits more constrained for newer policies uh, that I, I'm not as optimistic that they'll pay off as much as projected. Um, they might make sense for some people, um, but as with life insurance policies, it really depends on how much you're paying for what you potentially could get.
0: And more on that next week. Absolutely. Here we go, (laughs) foreshadowing. All right, our next question comes from NJ. I'm 38 years old. I just got myself completely out of debt. Yay! And I'm finally starting my saving and investing journey. I will be able to save and invest a minimum of a thousand a month. I currently have zero stashed out of the seventeen thousand emergency fund. I would like to keep in an ultra liquid yet proper interest bearing vehicle. I'm all over the map about my options, ranging from an online savings account with point fifty percent APR, to a money market account, to a nifty sector you guys mentioned on your podcast not too long ago, commercial paper. Did we talk about commercial paper? Where was I?
1: I don't remember. I
0: believe you, NJ.
1: NJ may be referring to another Motley Fool podcast. We're all the same.
0: We're all the same. All right. My question to you, fine folks, comes in two parts. What are the best options to stash and grow an emergency fund? And two, would you recommend I focus 100% of my kitty into building that nest egg first before beginning my long-term investment journey or allocate a percentage to both immediately?
2: Well, congratulations to you, NJ, on becoming debt-free. That's so exciting and always a great accomplishment. Um, I think it's wonderful and important that you have your sights set on your target emergency fund. I do think you should focus on building the emergency account first, especially if that figure represents only three months of your fixed expenses. We want to avoid emergencies arising and falling back into the cycle of having to lean on bad debt to cover us. You work so hard to get out of debt, and we want to keep you on that track and keep it that way. Um, I often frequent the Motley Fool's Ascent Service or NerdWallet or Bankrate.com, which all do great jobs comparing the best savings vehicles and other products within personal finance to help choose the best place to establish an account. Of the options mentioned, you don't necessarily have to choose between one or the other. You can actually do both. I'd consider breaking up your emergency fund maybe into two buckets. Um what I've done in the past was save $10,000 in a money market account that enabled me to access my funds without penalty up to 6 times per month and gave me check writing ability which I'm sure most people aren't excited about nowadays but the <laughs> flexibility is important. Um I'll say make sure to compare the annual percentage rate. Um money markets tend to offer a more favorable rate because the the bank is uh investing the funds. Uh in today's environment, you can expect that to be something between what feels like nothing and a little over half a percent. I would lean toward an online account because those banks are usually able to offer a better rate because of the lower overhead as compared to brick and mortar banks. Finally, I'd investigate the automation features and fees. Find out, will this account allow you to make automatic transfers from your paycheck or linked or direct deposits from your paycheck or automatic transfers from a linked checking account? So you can make the practice of saving easier for yourself. Uh, In regard to fees, what are the fees to establish or maintain the account? Uh, Money market accounts usually have a slightly higher minimum, if any, um, than a savings account. But there are some that are with zero dollar minimum balance accounts. And I would lean toward those because life happens and as you can imagine the intention of this account um, is to, at some point, dip into it or use it as your first line of defense when it comes to covering an unexpected expense. So you don't want to get dinged for um, not meeting a minimum balance. Uh, the second bucket uh, in of your of your balance at seventeen thousand, you're targeting um, in your case seven thousand. Um, Once you achieve your goal, of course, can go into a short-term, one year or less CD that offers a better rate than the money market. Um, Of course, assess what the penalties are in case you need to withdraw from the CD prematurely, but there are some CDs that offer a penalty-free withdrawal. Uh, If the $17,000 represents a more conservative savings goal, say six to eight months of your fixed expenses, then I'd say uh, explore a money market fund. Um, so, money market fund being different than a money market account, um, and that could complement the money market account that you decide or should you decide to open. But uh, both money market accounts and money market funds are safe places to park cash and both invest in similar things, short-term debt, maturing in one year or less. Uh, they... The key difference between the two is that the money market fund is low is a low-risk investment, which means your principal contribution is not guaranteed. In addition to that, you're not beholden to the six time per month withdrawal limitation. And also investment companies offer money market funds um, and there's usually a fee known as an expense ratio built into the fund. So these expense ratios are not very high, but they do exist and they can impact how much you actually earn from the fund. So, keep in mind, um, lastly, that money market funds usually have a typical return of one to two percent and these funds are like security investments, not insured, whereas the money market accounts are FDIC insured. So, uh, happy savings and before you know it, you'll be ready to start investing.
0: Yay! Way to go, NJ. All right. Our last question comes from Matt. I have a chunk of cash that I've saved for some intermediate-term goals. I'm not willing to put it in the stock market as I don't want that much risk, but I would prefer to get at least a little more return from it than I can get from current CDs or online savings accounts. I was considering short-term bond index funds, but I recently read about bond ladders and am intrigued. What are your thoughts about laddering like this? As always, thanks for all you do. Oh, and also, bonds! (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, Matt, the wisdom of a bond ladder is built on the premise that bonds that mature later will pay you a higher interest rate as compensation for you locking up your money longer. So theoretically, a five-year bond should pay more than a four-year bond, a four-year bond should pay more than a three-year bond, and so forth. And the same with CDs, by the way. Uh, so with a bond ladder, you split your money up equally, say, let's say in five, five amounts and invest one part in the one-year bond. Some part of the two year bond and so on, all the right way up to five years. That way, you're benefiting somewhat by the higher rates offered by longer term bonds or CDs, but you also have some money coming due every year, so you have some liquidity. The problem is nowadays, you just don't get paid that much for holding a, an intermediate to longer term bond. So, just for example, according to the Federal Reserve, the average rate on a one year corporate bond is 0.2%, and the average rate on a five year bond is 1.2%. And the two, three, four year bond are somewhere in between that. So earning an extra 1% is still something, uh, but you'll have to decide whether it's worth tying up your money that long, especially if you expect interest rates to rise. The other challenge with the bond ladder is that you have to choose the bonds, which takes some education and effort. And it's it's kind of a whole new thing. It's very different than picking stocks. There are all kinds of new concepts and terms to learn, like premiums, discounts yield to maturity, yield to worst, um, which is frankly why some people just do a CD ladders. You won't earn as much with a CD ladder, but it's simpler and safer because CDs are FDIC insured, whereas with bonds, you do have to worry about default risk. So a final thought about this. There's actually a way to build a bond ladder with what are known as target date bond ETFs. And most uh, the most commonly offered ones are offered by Invesco and they're known as bullet shares. It used to be offered by Guggenheim and then Invesco bought them out. Each uh, each of these ETFs has a year in the name, such as 2025. It only holds bonds that mature in that year. Once the bonds have matured, the ETF eventually matures and all the cash is distributed to shareholders. It's it's basically an easy, low cost way to own a diversified portfolio of bonds, and because they all mature in the same year. You can use them to somewhat manage interest rate risk, depending on how much you pay for the ETF. So if you're intrigued, go to Investco's site and look up their bullet shares to learn more.
0: All right, that's our questions for this month. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad you thought so. See, we're not so bad. We're not so,
2: I don't, <laughs> well, I don't think. He doesn't bite, so that's good. <laughs> he, he doesn't,
0: uh, at least not for your first time on the show. And over Zoom, it does make it harder. But thank you so much. We'd love to have you back again. Definitely. All right. That's the show. It's edited relaxingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> I see you there. Our email is answers at com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay Foolish, everybody.